Reorganising NATO, the alliance gets its biggest ever shake-up of major commands. British troops train soldiers in Somalia. There are two things that you know I hear about Somalia, you know, one of which that it is on the precipice, the other phoenix-like, you know, sort of rising from the ashes. You know, actually neither of those two things are true. And we look into the future and the role of artificial intelligence in conflict. NATO's Secretary-General has issued a warning about the security situation in Afghanistan. Jens Stoltenberg was speaking at the NATO Defence Minister's meeting in Brussels. The alliance has already confirmed an extra 3,000 troops are being sent to Afghanistan. Iraq and Syria have also been discussed. Well, here's Britain's new Defence Secretary, Gavin Williamson. We've already committed extensively to operations there, flying over 1,600 uh, 1,600 flights degrading uh, Daesh forces across Iraq and Syria. And what has been so positive, over 5 million people have been liberated as a result of our actions and 60,000 Iraqi troops uh, be, have been trained. But let us not be complacent. There is still a job of work to be done. And until Daesh has been totally degraded and totally destroyed, we will continue fighting. Well, not a lot there that we don't already know, but he's only a week into the job. Christopher Lee is our defence analyst and he's here. Christopher, was that a, a cautious and wise start for the new defence secretary? Well, it wasn't his, actually. It was the uh, it was the opening speech that Michael Fallon would have given if he'd have stayed on as defence secretary. And that's a very sensible thing to do. Why change, why change the opera? You know, uh, and, and you don't have to. Pretty standard way of doing things. Well, let's talk to Forces News reporter Rob Olver at NATO HQ in Brussels. Uh, Rob, what have they been saying about Afghanistan? Well, as, as you mentioned, uh, there is a, a mission to train, assist and advise the Afghan security forces in Afghanistan called Resolute Su Support. That's currently standing at around 13,000 international troops. Britain's involved in that. Now commanders on the, on the ground want at least 3,000 more troops. And the reason for that is a persistent guerrilla war involving the Taliban and so-called Islamic State. According to U.S. military reports, the Kabul government has lost control of almost half the country. Uh, provincial capitals, uh, like Mashkagar, for example, are holding out. But the surrounding areas are often either contested or in insurgent hands. And that's very much the case in Helmand, where British forces once operated. So the the extra troops, it's emphasised, will not have a combat role. Operations against insurgents will remain Afghan-led. America also wants the uh, Afghan Air Force to be self-sufficient. Uh, air power, it's believed, would be a game-changer in, in a war against insurgent groups like the Taliban. So that's why this uh, expanded NATO force of uh, 16,000 is needed to train up and continue training the Afghan forces. I should emphasize that this is quite small compared to the level of troops at the height of NATO's combat mission in Afghanistan when the international military presence stood at around 100,000. Mm, indeed. And what has been said about Iraq and Syria? Well, uh, they're obviously uh, important as far as uh, NATO is concerned. NATO continues to uh, provide uh, a training mission there, Britain in, involved in that uh, in Iraq. And, and again, it's the same principle, training up the, uh, the local forces to combat, uh, in, in this case, uh, IS in uh, Iraq. Mm. Yesterday they talked about two new NATO commands. Can you enlighten us some more about those and any involvement that Britain might have? Well, 
we assume that Britain is going to be involved. It's not actually been stated yet, but uh, I can't imagine that Britain wouldn't be involved. These will be the first new commands that NATO has activated since the Cold War. Uh, they're intended to help uh, protect Europe should war break out with Russia. Now, some NATO allies have been nervous about Moscow's intentions since the annexation of Crimea. NATO already has four multinational battle groups, one led by Britain in the Baltic states and Poland. It's got a very high readiness joint task force point, points for action. Now NATO is establishing these two new commands, an Atlantic command, which keeps sea lanes safe from submarines and other naval threats. In Europe itself, a logistics command would enable free movement of forces across the continent. Now, the reason for this is that during exercises, convoys have been held up at customs posts on some borders. And this command's job would be to prevent that kind of thing happening in a, in a crisis. Also, where necessary, roads, railways, bridges, runways, uh, ports that need upgrading would be identified. Christopher Lee, um, tell us a little bit more about the significance of what the Spanish Defence Minister told the Secretary General. Uh, the important, uh, this is one of the sharpest ladies at all the Defence Ministers uh, at this meeting, Maria Dolores Garcia. Um, he wanted to know what's going on in uh, Catalonia. He wants to know, does it affect us? Are you able to han handle it? And in spite of the fact that it's, it's, he's right next door to Brussels and he's there all the time and has been to Madrid, for example, he doesn't know. And it's very important that when you went into the defence ministers, and more importantly, when you go into the uh, meeting of foreign ministers, which he will attend, whereas the defence ministers won't know, they have to have a clear idea of what is the problem and how it might affect the, the, the defence ministers. Now, it's then you get to, uh, and incidentally, the, uh, uh, the man who knows all the answers is uh, Sopnitsky, the, the, the Czech, and he was at this meeting. Supposed to last a half an hour, went on for an hour and three quarters. That tells you how important it is. Mm, a new agreement in air-to-ground weapons, what's that about? Um, during the Libyan war, the Allied, uh, the Allied bombing ran out of air-to-ground missiles. I mean, it just couldn't fly against the targets. And the Danes came up with a proposal that not the United Kingdom or America came up with a proposal that there ought to be a stockpile or an access pile of air-to-ground munitions. And they've agreed this, have they? They have agreed it. Uh, and what we saw here was a further agreement bringing on board, as they did about six months ago, the Poles, and bringing on other people who will actually make a contribution to this. And so you'll have an air force which knows where it can get hold of the right weapons. After all, not everybody fires the same ones. All right, we'll leave it there for now. Rob Olver in Brussels, thank you very much. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, artificial intelligence in defence. Are we in danger of a failure of imagination? And tweeting from the Western Front, what would soldiers of the First World War have said on social media? PFBS Sit rep. Somalia has been without a formal government for 25 years. In 2007, a force of African Union troops were sent in to try and restore security and defeat an Islamist insurgency led by al-Shabaab, a terror group linked to al-Qaeda. This week, though, AMISOM, as it's known, announced it was preparing to withdraw and hand over security to the Somali National Army, an under-equipped force of just 15,000 soldiers. Our reporter Simon Newton has been in Somalia and sent us the special report. 
In Somalia, this is the only safe way to travel. We've flown from Mogadishu to Baidoa, 180 miles inland, to meet troops from 60 Division of the Somali National Army. Inside a heavily fortified base, a group of 20 SNA troops sit in the scorching sun, clutching their AK-47s. The drills on the withdrawal were very good. Here advising them are British soldiers. The UK government is spending millions on a new training centre here. Until a few years ago, Baidoa was Al-Shabaab territory. And with Amazon about to start withdrawing, the pressure is on to build the SNA into a capable fighting force. Colonel John Wakelin is the commander of British forces in Somalia. There are two things that you know I hear about Somalia, you know, one of which that it is on the precipice, the other phoenix-like, you know, sort of rising from the ashes. You know, actually neither of those two things are true. It's nowhere near the precipice. Uh, but equally, we're not seeing a phoenix-like rise. Uh, what we're seeing is a, is a steady, medium-term progress. You know, I've had the opportunity here to speak to many, many Somalis that say that over the medium term, it's really, really different. I mean, we could not have been stood here having this conversation five years ago without considerable more threat than we're facing today. ABC, Twenty thousand African Union troops are in Somalia. This week Amazon announced it was realigning its forces, ready for their eventual withdrawal. The commander of 6th Division is General Ibrahim Yarrow. As you'd expect, he told me his men can defeat Al-Shabaab in five years, but only if the country's 25-year-old arms embargo is lifted. We can't get enough. No weapons, medicine, bullets. Simply not enough to fight. It's the biggest problem we face. If that embargo is lifted, we'll get the weapons we need to clean up Somalia. Back in Mogadishu, we joined a company of Ugandan infantry. They're keen to show us their new armoured vehicles donated by the Americans. Nearby stand the remains of their old ones, many twisted by IED strikes. Just hours before we arrived, a huge truck bomb killed 350 people in this city, the biggest loss of life here for a decade. So why is Amazon going? While there's an element of war fatigue, the other factor is money. In the six years to 2016, the cost of peacekeeping in Somalia rose threefold to $900 million, the bulk paid for by the European Union. Last year, the EU announced it was reducing the salaries it pays African peacekeepers by 20%. Kenya threatened to withdraw in protest. Brigadier Kayanja Mahanga commands Ugandan forces in southern Somalia, and he was blunt about what Amazon's withdrawal will mean. At first, we felt proud because we had recovered ground and... Uh, we had weakened the Al-Shabaab. Al-Shabaab was always on the run, we are on the offensive. But currently, because some people have not fulfilled their part of the bargain in this mission, it's, it's really very disappointing that uh, we, are, we are now headed for a drawdown, which will give Al-Shabaab an upper hand. Of course, after the drawdown, Al-Shabaab is going to capture most of the areas that has, have been under AMSOM and government control. Proof that could happen came last year when Ethiopia withdrew 2,000 troops from an area of the country. Al-Shabaab quickly moved in, taking revenge on the local population. The international community has stepped up efforts to help Somalia, the UK one of the largest donors. But with this fragile nation still not stabilised and its army weak, the prospect of the African Union departing leaves many fearing for its future. Simon Newton for Sitrep, Mogadishu in Somalia. And there's more from Simon in Somalia all next week on Forces News on radio and TV. Christopher Lee, um, the focus then, the importance is building up the Somali National Army into a credible force. How big a task is that? Huge. The Somali uh, army is made up of clans. 
It's not made up of battalions in the way that you would see or national, uh, with one national interest. It's all clans. They all have opposing ideas. They won't work. In some cases, they won't work with somebody from another clan, etc. So how do you deal with that? Uh, well, it's the way the British trainers are, are doing. So they show them basic skills. This is how you use, in their case, probably an AK-47. But they show them basic skills. When they can get basic skills, they tend to work much better together Whereas up until then, it's you may as well give, I was going to say, you know, swap a spear for an AK-47. That's not right. But the point is, there is the problem. The other thing is, contrary to what people say, well, you know, it's it's all going reasonably well at the moment. October, last month, right, 358 killed in the in, in dead in in the, in the capital. Uh, that doesn't sound to me. Uh, like something's actually mm. working. But we've seen that in Afghanistan, haven't we? Suddenly you get a and television... And continue to do so. Yeah, and you see a television station say it's blown apart by, by, by Taliban. The other thing is Abdullah bin uh, uh, Sambalusa. He is the intelligence chief of, uh, of uh, Somalia. He's about to go, actually. But he is saying... Western countries are not training people properly. They're not training them on the so, wage because you, you haven't got the resources. A lot of times they say, oh, we'll send 50 guys. You really ought to be sending 1,000 guys. In that light, then, how long do you think Britain will be committed in Somalia? Uh, how long will it take for the Somali... Uh, army to start coming together rather than being a, a mixture of 115 clans. That is really the answer. And then you get the defence ministry who are going into a new uh, a new thing with DFID, uh, overseas development, uh, in in the next six months, and they're saying we cannot separate the idea of expenditure on going to do army training with normal stuff that uh, DFID does in in, in charity aid. Now that is a big problem. We just lost the, def- the the one person who had an idea on it. The uh, the uh, Diffid Secretary of State. Mm. The the truth is nobody knows the answer to your question, but it is not short term. Mm. And if it's not short term, you're going to start thinking about, about putting a training battalion in, with it. In which case we will revisit the subject again. Now, what will the, the role of artificial intelligence be in future conflicts? Leading experts in AI gathered in London last night for a rather unusual event aimed at figuring this out. Among them were representatives from both the British and American armed forces, as well as artists, actors and even science fiction writers. Well, the evening began with a performance as author and analyst August Cole explained to Charlotte Banks. One of our plays that will start the evening off was a crowdsourced submission from a U.S. Army major, in fact, who's a wonderful writer. And it's really about the kind of future soldier's experience and relationships with her AIs as she sits very deep in a bunker fighting a, a war from a very long distance. Her experience is not a happy one in the service, and the AIs essentially are trying to save her life. Yeah, so this does seem to be quite an unusual way of looking at a defence issue. So how important is it that military experts and policymakers hear the thoughts of um, those like yourself from a more creative background on a subject like artificial intelligence? The creative community is incredibly motivated to get involved and help understand a lot of these next generation issues around technology, around the future of conflict. What the creative community brings to these questions about the future of conflict are not only visions of the future, a given story, a video game, or film, but the ways that they work, how they come up with ideas, how they collaborate, 
in a wholly different manner than a traditional defense organization might, for example. And we've found, though, through repeated interactions, that there's a lot to offer, both back and forth, in terms of you know, creating a link between these communities, and it's the works themselves, but also a shared sense of mission that these are important issues that we need to collaborate on together. You yourself are from a creative background, writing novels about the future of conflict. What are you bringing to, to this event and to this discussion? The work that I've done began in journalism, chasing down facts. I've switched over to fiction because it's actually easier in many cases to get at the truth of these really big issues that often involve gray areas. For tonight's event, I helped curate the selection of the plays that are being performed. Our project, the Art of the Future project, is committed to crowdsourcing, to opening up to as wide a possible community the sorts of opportunities that allow them to interact through their work, their art, with the most senior policy officials that you have in the US and the UK. And this evening is really part of that, where you're bringing together people who wouldn't ordinarily sit inside the same theater together uh, to tackle a very tough and really confounding question. What is the role of artificial intelligence in the future of conflict? And do you have any concerns about that role of artificial intelligence in future conflict? Are there any dangers that we should be looking at now going forward? With any new technology, there are incredible opportunities and very real perils. In fact, one of my biggest concerns is that we will see countries whose values and ethics and political systems are not aligned with ours, like Russia or China, make leap ahead advances that change the nature of warfare in ways that we can't catch up with. That's the sort of concern that I have more than uh, the arrival of a killer robot that invokes the sort of Hollywood definition of what uh, artificial intelligence and war might, might actually be like. What's standing in the way of the West keeping up with the likes of Russia and China? Is it down to money or what do you think it is? Getting and maintaining a lead in an area like artificial intelligence almost always comes down to people. And people have different motivations. Money, of course, in Silicon Valley is an incredible motivator given the riches that have been created in the last 20 years there. But so is the sense of mission and purpose, the idea of making the world a better place through peaceful means, through supporting uh, forces that are in any given military in the West. So the ultimate answer to the question of how do you stay ahead in the artificial intelligence game comes down to people and their motivations. Do you think governments are taking artificial intelligence in, in the defense world? Are they taking it seriously enough? I don't think governments are taking artificial intelligence enough seriously in the defense world. I think there's a lot of room to go in really recognizing the potential game-changing nature of it. It's very easy to uh, give in to the tyranny of the inbox and focus on the issues of the day rather than thinking about those that are just over the horizon. Because many of those issues, in fact, will come at us much quicker than we anticipate. And even if they are at a slower uh, sort of pace, the fact that we're prepared and thinking about the kinds of responses we need to have, the better off we're going to be. That was the writer and analyst August Cole talking to Charlotte Banks. What if social media had existed during the First World War? A dedicated team of researchers has created an online profile for a fictional soldier and he's been tweeting and updating his Facebook status from the front line. Walter Carter has more than 20,000 followers on Facebook. Well, let's talk to one of the people behind the project, Diz Majoris, who is in the studio in Oxford. Good to speak to you today, Diz. Um, tell us about this Walter then. Well, thank you for having me. Um, so Walter is a fictional fictional but entirely authentic character. He was a member of the Territorial Force, which is a forerunner of the modern Army Reserve. When war broke out in 1914, uh, he was aged just 19. 
He arrived in France in early 1915, and since then he has fought at the Battle of Luz, the Somme and Passchendaele, and he's been telling his story ever since. And how did you go about planning that story? I understand it's based on historical research. It is indeed. Our researcher and writer is a very talented lady called Nikki Pye. She's actually in London today talking to schoolchildren in character as Lily, Walter's girlfriend. She looks at a range of historical sources, such as war diaries, personal diaries, letters and newspapers. We use sources of the time so we can see it as the characters saw it, instead of with the benefit of hindsight. Mm. Do you already know what's going to happen to Walter? Will he come home? I couldn't possibly tell you. You'll have to follow him on Facebook. Is it worked out, though, or or do you sort of follow real-time events and then decide on a daily basis? No, we write between four and six months in advance. Um, So we are intending to keep the project going until November 1918, 2018. Um, But you'll you'll have to follow the story to see what happens to Walter. And some 20,000 followers on Facebook. Um, What sort of feedback are you getting from them? We get some lovely feedback and it makes us really happy to see people engage with the story. They wish him the best of luck when there is an offensive planned. They commiserate with him when he loses some of his pals. Um, We also have comments along the lines of, it's so important to tell this story. Um, We encourage comments, we look forward to them. You mentioned that uh, one of your people, the person who writes this, is actually talking to school children today in character. Um, Is that where the idea came from, to inform and educate the younger generations? Yes, we, we started the project back in June 2014, although we were planning it before that. We were talking in the office about how to commemorate the centenary of the First World War, And we came up with the idea of what if social media existed? And we thought it would be a great way to tell the story through a modern medium in a way that will connect with young people. What's been the most interesting um, feedback you've had from people? Well, interestingly, we've done some visits to schools where we go into a classroom and talk to pupils about the project and they instantly get it um, because it uses such a modern media and I think they're very interested in hearing all the other character stories. So it's not just Walter. We, we mm. ha- he has his girlfriend on the home front. He has Ma who's struggling to feed the family um, and, and from that they, they really get a picture of the whole events of 1914 to 1918, not just the military side. And briefly, Des, what's he doing today, Walter? He's just found out that he's being sent to the Italian front. Oh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> we'll watch that with interest. Des Majoris, good to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much. Now, a new study shows there are large-scale gaps in people's understanding of the British Armed Services. A survey for the Forces Network, which incorporates Forces Radio BFBS, has some extraordinary conclusions. One is that nearly a half of young adults have no idea of British military involvement in the Second World War. 90% of those surveyed are not aware of over half Britain's military commitments in the past 70 years. Professor Ian Beckett carried out the study. You wouldn't expect people necessarily to have picked up some of the deployments, say, to Somalia or Estonia, that kind of thing. But considering there has been a lot of coverage of the RAF operations against ISIL, that also is surprising. Well, ahead of the weekend's commemorations, the professor has helped produce a special remembrance map. The idea is to give a greater understanding of what British forces personnel are doing and have been doing since 1945. Some of those conflicts that we've recorded on the map would not have been very well known 20 or 30 years ago. We've ended up with well over 60 conflicts, including the two world wars. So part of this process is to try to inform and educate people, and I think the map does that very well. 
Well, Christopher Lee is writing furiously during that uh, little bit of interview there. Are you writing to Walter Carter, Christopher? No, not bothering. <laughs> just, just though, no. seriously though, it does seem that uh, this awareness problem is, uh, is a little bit concerning. It's ever been that way? Ever been that way? I mean, I've, the average person in the United Kingdom knows nothing of the British Armed Forces because nothing is told about the British Armed Forces. You know if a, uh, if a bunch of guys have gone off to Afghanistan... Do you think that might be changing, though? Because no. having said... Well, when we hear it's these even e less now but because the, there's no war in Afghanistan. Yeah, but you say that, but look, look at these educational projects that we're hearing about. It does seem that uh, certainly in this business, in what we do, we talk about it, we report it all I, the time, but it does seem there is a push for more, more education I, in I, schools. I was talking to a sixth form conference... Mm. Uh, of young would-be historians, okay? Go on. And we had 40% of them ble believing that the person that led Britain in the Second World War was Margaret Thatcher. Okay. Right. No, no, <laughs> Are no, you no, serious? This, this wasn't exaggerated. You probably they said worse no than idea. gracious to them. let me tell them. you why there is no, uh, no idea. A, the confusion. It's easy, e much easier to understand what was happening in the First World War. Second World War was spread over the whole world, and it was far more difficult to understand. Today, there is a great debate of what we should do about the British Armed Forces without anybody explaining what the British Ar Armed Forces actually do, rather than that sort of very solid language that the Ministry of Defence uh, put out when they're doing... So, uh, should we worry about it, or are you saying this is towards ever thus, therefore accept it? I think I think you should worry about it because uh, you know we're asking people to, to to put up forty billions, forty billions. You're asking people to wonder whether it was the right decision to 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 buy two aircraft carriers and all that went with it. You are asking people to come on board when you're when the generals say we need more money. Okay. But the difficulty is we don't understand and nobody has published properly an, a self-explanatory note of where we want these forces to be and for what uh, purpose. Okay. And if you try and fix the difference between the RAF, the Navy and the Army, even a lot of people in the Ministry of Defence cannot do it. I believe I got you on your soapbox there, Christopher. A uh, subject that your sixth formers um, may not know about also. A hundred years since the Russian Revolution. They're very good sixth formers as well. I yeah. mean, they were all, they were all A-stars. Well, the Russian Revolution, enlighten us. Yeah. Here's the lesson for today. Why did it happen and why did it eventually fail? Well, OK, the Russian Revolution didn't start in 1917. And so you had November 1917, which is the anniversary of the Russian Revolution. You didn't get the Lenin and Trotsky and the young Stalin going out on the street and say, hey, guys, we have the revolution today. It began in the 1860s, really, with the unrest that was throughout Europe. Mm. When, when, in, when Marx published uh, Das Kapital, uh, Lenin read it, Stalin read it, other people read it and say, this is what we've got to change. And why so is you it? Jump what? Sorry, carry on. I'm going to say you jump forward to what was the Beit Revolution of 1905, which was the first Bloody Sunday. We use this term Bloody Sunday quite a bit. This is where we first heard it. And what happened then, in 1918, all the, the, the titles were changed and the Communist Party of, uh, okay. of Russia w was founded in January by, by Lenin. He gave a, he gave a, a, a job as a commissar to, uh, to Stalin and off they went. But what failed to happen, nobody else joined in. They thought it was going to be a European uh, revolution. And then it took on a form. It was when Stalin took over after the death of Lenin in 1924. He took over Stalin, and he was one of the desperate despots. 45 million people died under his rule. 
and that was Russia fixed on a on a, a line of total control over population. Is that why the Russians aren't marking the occasion though? Now, well, partly because it was a failure. Communism was a, a total failure. You imagine, commun- uh, Russia spreads over what 111, uh, sorry, 112 different languages. Uh, it spreads over 11 time zones. It's from from the from the, the permafrost areas of Siberia uh, right back to Western Europe. Do you think There's anything no good... no way it could have succeeded. Did anything good come out of it? Uh, we didn't go to war, but that was something to do with being, being, I suppose, caught up in the whole thing. Nobody could move. The Russians didn't move, the Americans didn't move, the British didn't move. Uh, yeah, in that sense, yes. But also remember that Putin, who now runs the show, Putin didn't want another revolution and so on Sunday, when there was a parade in Red Square, it wasn't about 1917. It was a parade about Russia sending in troops to defend themselves against the German advance. This was known as the Great Patriotic War of, mm. of the Second World War. And that is where their, their history lessons stop. Uh, just uh, before we go, where will you be on Remembrance Day? I shall be at the Cenotaph. And that is all we have time for this week. Join the conversation. Christopher and I are live on the Forces News Facebook page on Thursdays from about 3.15 UK time. Today's video is already up. Or you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP and subscribe to the podcast. I'm Kate Jabot. Thanks for listening. We're back same times next week. Bye-bye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.